The reading today is taken from St. John's Gospel, chapter 4, beginning at the first verse. Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, 
the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. This is the word of the Lord. We're in a series, as uh, many of us will know, in the morning uh, called Amazing Grace, how grace transforms everything. And we're thinking about how it is that the wonderful grace of God towards us actually touches down in life as we live it, in life as we actually experience it, how it is that it brings freedom in the ups and downs, the delights, but also the struggles of life as we live it. And this morning, we come to the theme of shame. And so the title is, How Grace Frees Us from Shame. It is, in fact, many sociologists say, the primary social emotion. It is, they say, less the glue that binds us and more the whip that hangs over us. Shame has been called the swampland of the soul. Uh, the unspoken epidemic and the secret behind many forms of broken behavior. It is uh, correlated with many forms of mental illness, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, and so on. We know, don't we, that shame is powerful. We, We talk about burning with shame. We talk about people dying of shame. What is shame? Ed Welch is a Christian uh, pastor and counselor in America who has written a book that I have found very helpful and used a lot uh, in preparing this sermon. His book was called uh, Shame, or is called Shame Interrupted. And he says this, just to sort of set the scene. He says, quote, Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did or something that was done to you or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. And he goes on to make the point that that therein, in a sense, lies the difference between shame and guilt. Guilt, if you like, is a day in court. It is a judicial judgment. But shame is much more of a community thing. It is the way you feel in regards to a community and the way the community feels in regard to you. So he says the words that are associated with shame are commonly words like rejection, or outcast, or contaminated, or exposed, or worthless. They're sort of community judgments. And social media is making us increasingly a culture of shame. I read one social commentator a few months ago in the newspaper making the point that we enjoy shaming others on Facebook or Twitter or whatever it might be because it signals our virtue. He went on to say that rather than go to the trouble of actually being good, we simply point out how bad other people are, and that makes us look good, which is, of course, so much easier than actually being good. And Ed Welch goes on to point out in his book that even in the church, we are not immune from shame culture. There are some sins that have us taking a step back of even subconsciously excluding that person. 
Shame is something that is deeply personally felt. It is deeply damaging if it's not dealt with correctly. And the question this morning is, how does the gospel of grace address shame? First, it reminds us actually that sometimes there is a place for it. In other words, we're not called to be a shameless people in the sense that we think nothing of sin, for instance. There is a right sense of shame that we're meant to experience when we do something wrong. It is the sign, that sense of shame can be the sign of a conscience that is at work, is is functioning. The Bible will say that there is a sense in which sin should lead to shame, or a sense of it. But of course it will say, yes, we should experience it, but no, we're not meant to live in it. In other words, the experience of shame is meant to be felt as the first step to the experience of forgiveness and freedom from shame. Shame is never meant to have the final word. Grace is. It seems to me in John 4, and now we come to John 4, we meet a woman who is living under the shadow of shame. We find her drawing water, <coughs> excuse me, uh, but we find her drawing it alone. And at noon, two things that are unusual, particularly in that culture. Usually, women drew uh, the water together. It was a community activity. And secondly, you wouldn't draw it at noon in the heat of the sun. You drew it in the cool of the morning or in the cool of the evening. But here she is, alone, at noon. It seems to me that she is experiencing some the shame of community exclusion, And when we ask the question, well, why might that be the case, the answer appears, doesn't it, in her conversation with the Lord Jesus. It seems her life is a bit of a mess. She's had five husbands, we discover a little bit later on. Now, friends, even if that was legitimate, in other words, even if she'd had a husband and he died, then another husband and he died, even if they were legitimate remarriages, actually, in the culture of the day, that would still be a shameful number. Uh, The rabbis of the day apparently set the level at about three More than that, and that was a shameful number. How they arrived at three, I do not know, friends, but apparently they did. So five would already be considered a little bit bit odd, to say the least. But the point is there's more than that, isn't there? As Jesus says, "The the man you are now with is not your husband. In other words, she is now in a relationship that is illegitimate. This is either sex outside of marriage, or even the Greek equally implies that she is sleeping with somebody who is somebody else's husband. Could be either. Either way, this is a sinful action, and it has brought shame in its wake, and that is why she is alone. But she is not alone for long. For the one who made her is seeking her. And that's the first point. How does the gospel of grace address shame? It reminds us that the God of the universe delights to draw near. The God of the universe delights to draw near near. Have a look at verse 9. Jesus approaches this woman and uh, asks for a drink, and she says to him, shocked, but you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. See, how how does God begin to tackle sin and shame? Very simply, but I think very profoundly, he does it by moving towards it. He does it by moving towards us, by associating with us in our shame. Jesus moves towards her. He initiates the interaction, the conversation. 
For this woman whose sin and shame has left her feeling profoundly excluded and isolated, Jesus draws near. And she is shocked. Her reaction is one of shock. She is shocked that a man of his cultural heritage would associate with her. And she doesn't know the half of it yet. She just thinks he's a Jewish man. Wait until the conversation unfolds and she discovers who's really drawn near to her. And her disciples, that's why I had to read on to verse 30. Her disciples are shocked. Surprised is too weak. They are shocked that Jesus is speaking to this woman. That breaks all the laws of piety, especially for a rabbi. To reach outsiders, Jesus becomes an outsider. He risks becoming contaminated himself with shame and receiving the shock of the community in order to draw alongside this shamed woman. How often, friends, do we see that when we read the life of Jesus in the Gospels? How often do we see him going out of his way to meet those whom the community or who they themselves considered to be untouchable? consider themselves to be unclean, consider themselves to be shamed. He does it time and time again. He goes to the tax collectors, and he goes to the lepers, and he goes to the, quote, sinners, and he goes so on and so on and so forth. So much so that what do the Pharisees nickname him in a pejorative way? Friend of sinners. That's what they call him. They chastise him for the company he keeps. Do you see? They, they pour shame on him because he delights to draw near to the shamed. They were not expecting a Messiah who, in the words of Philippians 2, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Why did he do that? Why did he take on flesh? Friends, the grace of the incarnation is this, that Jesus gives up the splendor of heaven so that he can take upon himself the flesh of man. Why? In order to draw near to us in our sin and in our shame. That's why he does it. I recently visited a local prison, and uh, it was said uh, several times by several different people how much uh, those, the inmates there, simply appreciated the visit, simply appreciated somebody from the community coming in and shaking hands and having a conversation with them, simply drawing near and associating with them in that context. Well, how much more so? when we discover that the God of the universe delights to draw near to us in our sin and shame? How much more so does that begin to begin the process of addressing shame? You see, when my conscience tells me that I am untouchable because of something I have done or because of something that has been done to me, or when the community around me tells me that I am untouchable because of something I have done or because of something that's been done to me, I look at the Lord Jesus Christ who took on flesh precisely to draw near to me, precisely to touch me, if you will. And what's more, Jesus doesn't just stand next to us in our shame. He stands in for us in our shame. That's how Philippians 2 goes on, isn't it? Being found in appearance as a man, he humbles himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Again, it was reading Ed Welch's book on this that it's... This struck me for the first time. I hadn't thought of it like this. He makes the point, why does Jesus go to a cross? I mean, we know he has to die because you know, as Christians, we know our theology. We know that sin deserves death, and therefore if he's going to be able to forgive people rightly, he needs to be able to pay that death penalty. We, so, so that's that. We know he has to die, but why die that death? Why die the death of a, on the cross? Why die the most 
one of the most shameful deaths ever devised. You know, stripped, naked, paraded, slowly killed on public display. Why does he die a death so shameful that Philippians 2 has to say, even death on a cross? Well, part of it is surely to identify with us in our shame. You see, to those who know what it, to those who know what it feels like to be vilified or verbally spat at, or maybe even physically spat at, or stripped, or abused, or hated, or mocked, or slandered, or cut off, killed, metaphorically, Jesus says, I've walked that road. I've walked that road. There is nothing you can experience in terms of shame that I have not experienced. I have walked that road. I'm with you on that road. I'm there for you on that road. You see, it's as he takes all our shame upon himself, he overcomes it, and he replaces our shame with honor. That's what's happening on the cross, isn't it? He takes our shame, and as one commentator says, we go from being poor to being rich. We go from slavery to royalty. We go from being weak to being strong, from foolish to wise, from ugly to beautiful, from shame to honor, from naked to clothed, from unclean to holy, from outcast to beloved. As he walks that way of shame, as we turn to him in faith, that great exchange takes place. He takes our shame and we receive his honor. And he can only do that because he takes flesh and he delights to draw near. That's the first point, Jesus draws near. Here's the second point, Jesus draws out. He draws this lady out. Verse 13, 14. So he offers her living water. He says, anyone who drinks from this well will be thirsty again. But if you drink the water I give you, you will never thirst again. So there's the offer. What's he doing? He is going to the root of her shame. He's going to her sin. He's saying, look, the reason why you are going after all these men and are in the relationship you're in now is because you're looking for life in created things. And if you look for life in created things, you'll always be thirsty. If you drink this created water, you'll be thirsty again. If you look for life in created things, you'll be thirsty again. It won't ever really satisfy, but I can give you living water. I can give you the relationship for which you were actually made and that actually satisfies. That's the offer. But to do that, for her to receive that, she needs to know, she needs to come to him. She needs to know that indeed that's what she's doing. Uh, She needs to know that that is the root of her sin. She needs to know the forgiveness that comes from the Lord Jesus. And what we find Jesus doing in the conversation is taking her eyes off the material water and lifting them uh, to confront her own vain search for life and created things. And then it reaches a bit of a climax in verses 16 to 19. Have a look at this, friends. He says to her, go, call your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. What's he doing? What's Jesus doing here? What he's doing is he's bringing her face to face with the mess of her life, isn't he? He's bringing her face to face with her sin. Now, why is he doing that? Is he doing that because he wants to shame her again? Is he doing that because he wants to heap more shame upon her shoulders? Well, if we know anything about the Lord Jesus, and as we see from the conversation in front of us, it can't be that. What he's doing is he wants to get to the root of what's going on. He wants to expose the mess of her life so that he can address it. But he's doing more than that, particularly as we think about the issue of shame. I think he's doing more than that. 
By exposing the messy details of her life, he reassures her. He reassures her that he knows who he is talking to. He reassures her that he knows who the one he has just offered living water to actually is. In other words, it's easy to imagine, isn't it, that a woman in her position might think, oh, he's offered me living water, but if he knew the kind of woman I was, if he knew what they thought about me back in the village, if he knew what I'd done, if he knew what I'd been through, if he knew what my reputation was, he would soon distance himself. He would soon retract that offer of living water. And Jesus says, by drawing her out and then saying, I know exactly who you are, he reassures her. He says, I know exactly who you are, I know what you've done, I know what you've like." And I've chosen to draw near to you. I've chosen to offer you eternal life, and I know exactly who you are. There is no secret that will drive me away, because there's no secrets here. I know you. Tim Keller, in his uh, wonderful book on marriage, which I commend to you very, very warmly, writes this. To be loved but not known is comforting, but it is superficial. Do you see? Because you're loved, but if you're not known, you think sometimes, well, if, if, if they knew this about me, they would withhold some of that love. So it's comforting, but it's superficial. You're always worried, are they going to discover X that might, that might distance them from me? To be known, but not loved, is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is what it is like to be loved by God. It is that that we need more than anything else. That's what he's saying. I know you fully, and I love you, and I offer you living water. It is that love that casts out shame. The woman in John 4, I think, was living in the dark shadow of sin and shame. This is the woman Jesus delights to draw near to. Jesus loves the excluded, the outcast, the unwanted, the unlovely. We see it time and time again. His engagement with her shocks even her, who I would imagine has grown used to contempt rather than conversation from her peers, particularly the religious ones. And yet here is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy God, calling her into a relationship with him that will forgive her sin and cast out her shame. There's a lovely passage in Isaiah, and it goes like this. The Lord's speaking to his people. Sing, O barren woman who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. For you will forget the shame of your youth, for your maker is your husband. Do you see? Shame is covered by a new relationship, a relationship with the Lord. A relationship with the Lord Jesus is the way out of shame. His forgiveness cuts it off at the root. And Ed Welch goes on to say this very helpfully. If your shame is from the ways you have been treated by others, then this is your way out too. Their rejection or violence defined you, and their evil deeds linked you to them. But by faith, that bond has been broken, and you are now linked with Jesus. You are defined by him, and you receive his reputation. John 4, Jesus, the holy God of Israel, the holy God of the world, who delights to draw near in our sin 
and in our shame, who delights to associate with us, who delights to take our sin and shame upon himself and replace it with honor and with glory. The God who draws us out in order to expose and to heal. The God who knows us fully and yet is constantly faithful in his love towards us. That is how the gospel of grace addresses shame. Amen.